Welcome to Cigar City Radio, episode number 21. I'm your host, Randy Ojeda, and making the magic happen, Mr. Jason Solanez. Randy, I always wondered what it was like to be a goat. This episode has a lot to do with goats. And balls. And insertions. (laughs) Michelle, you got nothing to say on this one? No. If you love Cigar City Radio, and we really hope that you do, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We encourage you to leave a review in the iTunes store and share the show with your friends. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Cigar City Radio, and you can email us at CigarCityRadio at gmail.com. This episode of Cigar City Radio was recorded at the Blind Tiger in Ybor City. The Blind Tiger is a 1920s speakeasy-style coffee shop serving coffee, tea, vegan pastries, and more. With locations in Ybor City and Seminole Heights, you can check them out at blindtigercafe.com. We are now only two weeks away from our first-ever Noche Buena party taking place during South by Southwest with 15 bands. All right, now, gentlemen, let's read those names. We got Hockey Dad. And Detective. High Wasted. Sand Medicine. Jackson Boone and the Ocean Ghosts. The Undercover Dream Lover. Dirty Dishes. Wobbly Jets. Field Trip. Shark Muffin. Fruit and Flowers. Mm, tall Juan. The Plastic Peaks themselves. And Vinny Hands. And when's that happening, Jason? That's happening on Wednesday, March 15th at Stagold in Austin, Texas. It's happening from 3 p.m. to 2 a.m. There's no cover, and if you're under 21, we will kick you out. We'll get a swift kick in the bootocks. Oh, and be there or be square. Yes. Our guest on this episode is singer, songwriter, and guitarist Glenn Phillips, best known as the frontman from the platinum-selling band Toad the Wet Sprocket. He's worked with Sean Watkins and his sister, who is also Cigar City Radio veteran Sarah Watkins, on the Mutual Admiration Society collaboration, and has released numerous solo studio albums and live releases. Also, his song, The Hole, is featured at the end of the second episode of Breaking Bad's Season 1. Yeah, a little fun fact for you. All right, check that out on Netflix. Yeah, and you can also check out his new album, Swallowed by the New, out now on You Mommy Music. So here it is, episode 21. So much more. Actually, we we just had um, Sarah Watkins on the show oh, a couple weeks ago. I know you did the uh, was the mutual mutual admiration society mm-hmm. NWPA yeah. record and yeah, she's one of my favorites. She's amazing. Yeah, she was great to talk to and yeah, really her cool. new records insanely good. Yeah, um, you should tour again with her. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll set it up. Well, no, not us personally, <laughs> but there you go. Set it Do up. your best. Yeah. 
That'd be awesome. So I know the burning question for a lot of people that are familiar with Toad the Wet Sprocket, but maybe aren't, you know, connoisseurs of the band, if you will. Mm-hmm. The question that everybody asks is, what what's going on with the band name? Oh, the 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 uh, eternal the eternal question. the eternal question. The uh, the band name was uh, basically there was a Monty Python. Uh, they had this recurring character. Uh, the, like they had a bunch of band names whenever they were doing fake terrible bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the band names they would use was Toad the Wet Sprocket. Okay. So uh, just supposed to be an absolutely horribly named horrible band, <laughs> and uh, we thought that that was us. So it's strange that we get. I mean, it's one of those things we, we, you know, one of the only lists we ever make, uh, like, you know, we never got a Grammy or anything, uh-huh. but we always make like the top 10 worst band names of oh, all time, uh, <laughs> which is absolutely fine. But it's like a it's list, to be proud of, a list we knew we were signing up for. Yeah, and there's yeah. the idea that somehow we thought it was a cool name and we knew we knew actually exactly how dumb it was. And was that the thing? Was it just kind of just a joke that just went too far yeah it was going to be a placeholder (laughs) and we were going to come up with something really cool and then like a year passed and we played all these shows and and it just became the name and we still thought it was hilarious yeah so um yeah there you go i mean the thing is like bands i think bands put too much stock into their names i mean the beatles was a dumb name led zeppelin was a dumb name you know but those are great bands i think you can look past the name and then once you have the name, it's hard to change it. Like, it's hard to, you know, what would you have changed it to? I don't even know. I have no idea. Toad would have been fine. Sprocket <laughs> would have been fine. Yeah. Wet, Wet's, probably no. not. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's a band called Wet now, I think. Yeah, and there's Wet, Wet, Wet. Yeah. Moist doesn't Moist does not thing. work. Nobody likes moist. <laughs> oh, but it works. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of toads and toad, toad-like bands, I guess, mm-hmm. so... But, anyway, but you know, to have them all together is you know is, is incredible. <laughs> I guess so. This is a lot of content about toads. <laughs> no, we got a lot better stuff. So you started Toad the Wet Sprocket like 1989 was the first record, right? Bread and Services. Yeah, first one that came out. I mean, I started playing music with Todd, the guitarist in Toad, when I was a freshman in high school. He was a senior, and he had a car, so I could get a ride back from choir or theater from mm-hmm. him. We were all theater geeks. Um, and yeah, like the summer after my freshman year in high school, we started playing music. So I was probably, you know, 15 when we were, um, starting to do it 14, 15. And they were all seniors. So it was the, they graduated and we're all staying in town. And, uh, the plan was that every, you know, they were all getting ready to go out of town and go Mm -hmm. to school elsewhere. And and this was, and we got a record deal. This was California, (laughs) Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, California. And then, so. yeah, so you got a record deal pretty early on then. Yeah, I was 18. Um, wow. And we had the first two records done and went on the road, and uh, and there you go. That's so amazing. It's been a long detour. <laughs> <laughs> is that what, that what it is? This whole thing is just one long detour? Kind of. I mean, I knew, uh, you know, I'd been in theater before the band. I always felt like I needed creative outlets, but I wasn't. I think usually if your band gets signed, it's like the only thing you want out of life. Like you have to have this very singular um, passion for music specifically. Mm -hmm. And we got really lucky. You know, we made a couple of indie records uh, and I think A&R people in L.A. 
um, wanted an excuse to go up to Santa Barbara. I mean, it was a really great back in the day of the corporate card, like, you know, rather than say, yeah, I need to go to Hawaii for a weekend. Like they could do a little Santa Barbara vacation, get the sure. record company to pay for their hotel room, see us play. And <laughs> I, I think that's like half the reason we got signed. Yeah, it was just because you were in a, the right spot. And our people wanting to just drive up to Santa Barbara. Uh, and so we, we kind of lucked out. I mean, hopefully the music was good too. We worked really hard, but um, yeah. I'd planned on a more academic life. I'd wanted to do like high school teacher kind of route. Really? And, um, you know, Randy was poli sci and Dean was, you know, it's just none of us were expecting that that would be uh, the thing we'd end up doing professionally. And then we just suddenly found ourselves having it be the job so we worked as hard as we could at it but yeah. um we all assumed it was going to crumble in a couple of years and then we go back to our regular life so you weren't like this band of like you know proto-punk street urchins or anything you know like you were like actually well, we were pretty middle class i i had punk rock pretensions but you know in a very it's a great way to put it yeah i i mean uh Although the Santa Barbara punk scene was a pretty cool one. It was very, you know, it was a small enough town. And mm. so um, there's a place called the Noise Chamber. This band, um guy from Texas, he lives there again. They had a band called This Ascension. And they were mm-hmm. kind of, you know, let's say the cocktail twins of Santa Barbara. And they okay. were, you know, somewhat in the emo and goth world. Well, pre-emo, right? It was yeah. way before emo, but more like a 4AD band. And, yeah. uh and you know the punk bands would play there and we would play there and it was the kind of thing where we'd do shows with punk bands and there'd be a pit going and then we would go on and everybody would just sit down cross-legged and listen and it's not like people got up and left yeah. it's like everybody would sit and listen and be mellow mm-hmm. and then the next band would go up and the pit would start again hey. and um it was a really embracing scene, and so um, you could kind of be what you were, and there wasn't a huge pressure to be um, edgier than the next band. Yeah, and that's so, cool, because a lot of times that those kinds of hardcore and punk scenes can you know, be a little put off by a, a mellower, chill band. Yeah, and Santa Barbara seemed to do it well. And and once again, it was just a small town. There was this great metal band called Creature Feature at the time. And, you know, when Creature Feature was playing, you know, it's like you could all play the same gig. Yeah. And everybody would just get along and and dig the music. And, I mean, it was pretty broad. And we also lucked out because there was this club in town called The Shack. This guy, Jerry, uh, ran it. And... He thought that ASCAP and BMI were thieves. You know, somebody walked into his business one day and was like, "Hey, you're playing, you're playing music there. You got to pay a monthly thing for the songwriters and publishers." Yeah, it's a little mafia esque, a little bit. Except that as a songwriter, <laughs> it's the only way I make it, a living it, from my song. Well, that's the that's so the that's the there thing. is that. Yeah, um, yeah. But I could see how the if you if you hear it on paper or if you see it on paper it sounds like i could see how somebody could think it yeah. was a criminal yeah, thing without putting, so, without putting the songwriters work but right, the reason yeah. we we learned to write so many songs was because the the one one of the only places that would let us play in town was the shack and at the shack you weren't allowed to play any covers you couldn't even sing happy birthday there if it was somebody's birthday wow. so there was absolute strict he never had a radio on because he couldn't pay for the he wouldn't pay for the radio mm. so he had local bands which you know he wasn't paying anything. Yeah. Uh, 
playing all original music. And so we would play there like every week when we were in high school and we had to come up with a full set of original material. Um, and it wasn't like, I mean, the great thing was there are people that have places like that and they're like huge proponents of local music. And he was just cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was merely cheap. But the result was that all these, you know, primitive radio gods came out of there. A bunch of great bands played yeah. at the shack all the time because that was the place where you had to play original music. Yeah. So a lot of bands got opportunity through his cheapness. Yes, exactly. Well, that's good. At least something good came out there of was, it. There was a benefit. <laughs> that's amazing. So at what point did, because it was Columbia Records, I think, was released Pale? Yeah, they released Bread and Circus and Pale. And then Pale. Yeah, because so they re-released Bread and Circus. They're both they? were, well, Pale we'd recorded but hadn't released yet. So mm -hmm. we had two albums done when we got signed with them. Gotcha. And, and one we'd released, one, I mean, we'd sold 500 copies in Santa Barbara. Yeah. It wasn't like a big release. I mean, <laughs> but, a, that's a big release for, for a local for band. a local band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, they put that out, and then I think 91, 92 was the Fear record, mm -hmm. and then like nine months into that, we had All I Want, and then um, lasted till around 97, and uh, yeah. So you went from, in the span... you haven't heard anything I've yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so you went from, like, in two years, you went from a local band playing... The or no, it was two three years. You went from being a local band yeah. to being a platinum selling, you know, major label act at mm -hmm. at the age of twenty something. Yeah, like twenty one, twenty two. That's that's. I don't even know how I would deal with something like that. Um, it was weird. I mean, it's a complicated thing. I I had great friends and was really grounded. I met you know my wife and I split um, about two years ago. But we got together when I was 18, you know, just before the band was getting signed. And so oh. I feel like I had a really grounded life um, and a lot of great friends who weren't, I don't know, We, you know, I never moved to L.A. I stayed in Santa Barbara. I started having kids, got married at 23, started having kids at 25. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty much, you know, just a domestic guy. I would go out and work and then come back and... Um, uh, so on the one hand, I probably cost myself an incredible amount of money and career capital by staying in Santa Barbara and yeah. never really interacting with the business. But on the other hand, my kids grew up really happy and uh, I didn't have the big flame out that a lot of people yeah. in my business do. Um, and now you're still doing this, you know. Yeah, so I mean, I also later. didn't do, I call it the Rob Thomas maneuver, okay. uh, which is the, you know, it's like your band breaks up and you make a, uh, you know, a daring flip roll into a solo career where you have notoriety based on your own name and not just the band's name. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, uh, I fumbled. I did not stick that landing very well. Why do you say that? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, things are much, 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 much smaller now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the whole music industry is. The whole know, music industry yeah. is shrunk. But yeah. there's a thing of, you know, your name versus the band's name and some equity between the two. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I didn't do the greatest job of making that transition. So, do you Which feel okay? Uh, do you feel like you're you're making up for that now? I know you, you no, just had no. no, no I you're, think it's do too you, late. But do you care? I'm just writing good songs. <laughs> I mean, um, 
I, I go back and forth between caring. You yeah. know, uh, it's it's a strange thing because the business is once again has changed a lot and is based so much on kind of seeming. I guess yeah. uh, there's there's part of it that's based on the work you do and the quality of the songs you write and what you bring to the table. And then there's also you know when you're do you have a narrative that people want to hear at a given time? Do you have a look? Do you have a, mm-hmm. you know, is like the whole package put together in some way that's palatable? And, you know, I think there's, with any job, like you can be really good at the thing you do and some flip in trend or technology or just, you know, like if you were the world's best travel agent or let's say you ran the world's best video shop. Right, you okay, were the yeah. guy. Let's do yeah. video. Yeah, yeah, video. Yeah. You were the one with like all the great weird movies. You knew what people's taste mm-hmm. was, and you could turn people on to some beautiful indie film that would blow their mind. And they always wanted to come into your shop and ask you what. And you just happened to invest in a thing that suddenly was going to die, no matter how good you were at. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was um, nothing that Blockbuster could have done to prevent Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and so. You know, these things happen. They're like, it's just how history works. And I mean, uh, music, you know, there are times where if you did dance music, dance music was what, you know, it's like yeah. there's times where a certain kind of music is more popular. There was, like, there was a friend who was telling me that actually the big, like, 50s Afro-Cuban, uh, like, the reason that got so big was actually, once again, ASCAP and BMI. Mm-hmm. That there was a period, maybe it was as far back as the 40s, but... Musicians were starting to license songs. They were insisting that radio pay them, pay the songwriters and the publishers for the songs they were playing. Mm -hmm. What a concept. What a concept. (laughs) And so radio stations started finding, like, if they played Latin music, the Latin artists were just happy to be able to tour in the States. And so the music was largely unlicensed. And so you could run a radio station without having to pay the songwriters if you were playing the Cuban music. Wow. I didn't <laughs> know that. <laughs> it was part of the... Re- I mean, and it's awesome music, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's Great true. bands, incredible mm-hmm. music. Yep. It was also free for the radio stations. And so they were playing exclusively unlicensed music and they made this great music really popular in the States. And, it, it, you know, and, and part of it was because of time in history and because they were being cheap bastards. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> Yeah, but that's what people were hearing on the radio, I yeah. guess. So that's what people gravitated and to. And there's weird stuff like that. I just listened to this podcast on um, this guy who is this quack doctor. He, his ba- big thing for a while was like um, basically like getting impotent men, and he would uh, basically he had like a herd of goats. They would go over. They would pick out. Originally, it was bring your own goat, and then he got big enough that he had his BYOG. BYOG. <laughs> And then eventually there was the goat buffet and <laughs> you'd pick a goat you identified with and they would slice out its balls and insert them in your scrotum and it was supposed to cure your impotence. Uh, didn't work very well. <laughs> I think sound 43 like people died at his clinic oh. uh, and people were too embarrassed. It's like you went in for impotence and you got goat balls put in you and if it didn't work out, like you weren't going to go to the cops. But this guy, part <laughs> yeah, of the reason he became now. so successful, and he had all these like quack medicines, but he, it was the very beginning of radio and he bought himself a transmitter. He ended up like losing his medical, you know, he got, you know, the AMA shut him down. He was, you know, put away for fraud and he ended up moving to Texas mm-hmm. 
and setting up a mic in his house and then having like 500,000 watts or something of power. He had a transmitter in Mexico, like with a wire going underground from Texas into Mexico so he could broadcast all his quack medicine things. But the other thing about this guy was he was a big country music fan and country music was not getting played on the radio in the States. And so he became like the first major country music station. Wow. (laughs) Um, So it's another one. Yeah, like how does that happen? He made country music popular. (laughs) If I named a band Goat Ball Insertion and played country, would anyone get it? Um, Possibly. That that seems very obscure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't want to go anywhere near Goat Balls, I think is the moral of that story. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, you never know what good will come from a strange thing. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying. Motives be damned. but yeah, so m- music definitely goes through some weird phases and weird things. And now we're in a much less goat ball shift in the music industry, but still yeah. a shift nonetheless. I mean, they, there's there's less of a middle class and there's more of a middle class. It's interesting that the current mm-hmm. age really rewards um, digital natives. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you're really confident about putting yourself out there in a visual way if you're willing to make a lot of youtube videos sure i mean there are there are methods of availability yeah um that are democratized now Mm -hmm. which is a really positive thing um yeah but just as the radio uh, like the the record industry you know it's always promoted primarily it's like youth fashion there are certain things that it's better at selling Mm -hmm. right and uh YouTube also rewards a certain set of people mm-hmm. who are comfortable making things that do well on YouTube. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. And it's great because the barriers to entry are a lot lower, and it's to some degree anybody can get in now. Mm. Uh, but it, it also, you know, there are certain bands like I think of a band like Neutral Milk Hotel, mm-hmm. um, who, you know. Do you know Neutral Milk Hotel? Oh, of course. I mean, and, yeah. And they became, <laughs> you know, they were kind of like the zombies in that mm. they made this record, nobody knew about it, and then they disappeared. And right. then after their demise, they became the most important indie band in the world. Yeah. Right? And yeah. everybody I mean, copped their sound. And, you know, when they came back, it was like the second coming. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they, in the YouTube era, like they did well in the trading era. Yeah. They broke up at a time where they could become viral without visuals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a lot harder to do now. Like indie bands, like now that everybody's on a streaming service, it's the indie stuff doesn't rise to the top in the same way. The selection processes are different. Uh, and if it's not on YouTube, if it doesn't have great visual accompaniment, I think YouTube is the one place where people are still finding and trading independent music in a way that doesn't necessarily happen on Spotify. Like Spotify, it's about playlists. Right, right. You know, Apple Music is its own weird thing. Yeah. And so it's this moving target. The way people are sharing and discovering music keeps changing constantly. And uh, Neutral Milk Hotel was also, I think, a, um, a remnant of a certain technological era mm-hmm. and that would not have been discovered in the same way right now. Uh, yeah, just like, because they have a different tool set. Right? That sort of lo-fi thing they were doing. Lo-fi, well, and that it was music only. 
Yeah. You know, there were no accompanying visuals. Nobody knew who they were, what the story was, where it came from. It was just somebody sat you down and right. was like, "That's that's how I heard." Sit still for eight minutes. I'm going to play. Oh, comely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. how I got into Neutral Milk Hotel. I was in high school. My friend Ryan Backman sat me down and said, "You have to listen to this." And by like the third chord, I was I was in. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> I love you, Jesus. Christ. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You never heard anything like that's the thing. That album is like it's like your really depressed friend. I would describe it to people who hadn't heard it as like, well, let's say you had a friend who was like really thoughtful, really sensitive. You kind of knew they played music, but you were afraid that they'd suck. Mm. And so you never asked to hear and they were too shy about it. And then they killed themselves and you had to go through their stuff and you found the cassette tape of the album they'd been working on and tearfully you put it on and it ended up being the best album you'd ever heard. Yeah. That's an amazing. That's, Milk Hotel. that's an amazingly <laughs> apt description of Neutral Milk Hotel. Sad, but apt. <laughs> that's, that's so depressing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's amazing. Yeah, and you're right. I feel like an album like that probably wouldn't have broken out in the same way it did now. I mean, maybe on Bandcamp. You know, Bandcamp. I feel like it's kind of like the new Bandcamp tape scene a little discovery. bit. Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Bandcamp's its own culture, though. I mean, it it's a weird. It's not what Napster was. Mm-hmm. It's not what the trading world was. Yeah. I mean, there were so many tape trees, like digital tape trees, and even pre-Napster, there were, like, when it was really about the peer-to-peer yeah, world. Yeah. I was all sharing. about the IIRC stuff back in the day. Yeah, the, yeah. the and so the, the sharing of stuff, Bandcamp, it's, a por- it, it's more a single portal, and as much as it's indie and people, you know, they have a really cool service, mm-hmm. um, but it's still it's not the same i don't think anything's gonna match what what the peer-to-peer world was yeah i think that makes sense or at least nothing i could yet predict yeah i mean i'm (laughs) sure there's somebody out there working on something that's gonna blow our minds in three to five years you know or i hope i hope so i mean it keeps changing who would have thought like facebook like considering where facebook started Mm -hmm. and you know i've got like my 15 year old daughter you know she will not touch facebook Facebook is where old people go to complain, yeah. right? Yeah, like not wrong. <laughs> that, that Facebook would become that. Yeah, it started like, as a, you know? where college kids went to hook up and like meet each other. Oh you yeah, know? and now and, it's yeah. it was ultra exclusive, and now it is old people like you know filtering what they see so that they only see what they agree with. Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, she's it's on this, Instagram and she doesn't want. I mean, what's weird is that our generation who snickers at their generation, you know, my generation, excuse me, I'm older than you, uh, (laughs) but that like we are more slaves to our social media than than our kids are. My kids understand like, you know, I got a 21 year old and she eventually there was like an iPhone that a friend had. The camera was broken and her flip phone died. And she and went to AT and T, and like they didn't have just a regular mm-hmm. phone. She had to get a smartphone, yeah. and she was so upset about it because she didn't want to become another iPhone zombie. Uh. And 
you know, I see their generation is they've already seen these tools. They've already. Yeah, they're not impressed by this. They're not at all <laughs> impressed by it. And they're less a slave to it. And all the lonely, you know, I'm in the ranks of the divorce. And I notice I can tell when I'm getting depressed because I look at Facebook more. Mm. So I won't feel lonely. Yeah. And, you know, but then you like, feel lonelier and lonelier. That's like, it's oh, like yeah. a cycle. You know? It's terrible. Wow. I can't believe that kids nowadays. Yeah, they're they really are gravitating away from from Facebook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know. they'll do. I mean, Instagram is like the level of, you know, it's like post a picture of something you think is cool. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of tell a lot about a person from their Instagram. It's like, is your camera facing out or is your camera facing in? Yeah. If it's all facing in, not so interested. Yeah. If it's facing <laughs> out, like, hey, that says something about yeah, you. you. You look at the world outside right. and you want to share it. And it doesn't require a lot of commentary. And it's like, it's a, it's a medium that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't control your life. And yeah. uh, if you want to go the narcissism route on it, you can. But then again, that's really easy to avoid on it. It's yeah. like, well, it's, what I love is that it's easier now to find like-minded people and connect with them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you seek out your niche community, you can really, you know, yeah. make a good Yeah, and the problem with the like-minded part, I mean, and I say this as, you know, a a liberal probably... You know, I was a Bernie kind of guy. Uh, is no, seeking no out, judgments here. Seeking <laughs> out, well, and seeking out like-minded people is also a difficult thing, particularly in these days. Like, uh, you know, and having lost the um, the idea that we're all ultimately on the same side, even if we have different ideas of how to get there, uh, it's really easy to get in an echo chamber. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are as many echo chambers on the left as there are on the right, even though people who think like I do like to pretend that we aren't our own echo mm -hmm. chamber. Um, I think there's also a problem with finding like authentically like minded people, because so often mm -hmm. like whether it's a big movement like Bernie's movement and stuff like that, um, people will kind of just go with what they think is popular. So. Mm -hmm then they might pick up because it, the internet gives you so much information as well. So you can learn about something so you can present yourself as a knowledgeable person or someone that has the same likes or interests as you, but it's never really as authentic as it might be if you sit down and actually like meet somebody and talk to them and learn the differences and yeah. stuff as well. So. Well, and you can bond on, you know, you can bond on, fake news articles that you haven't read in their entirety that you share because they make you feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've started, I've been trying to limit my news sources more. I got bad about it in the last few months. I went on like a total media fast after Trump got elected. I just couldn't handle it. And I was yeah. so mad at social media for like the echo chamber and all the disinformation. Yeah. And it just, it made me so infuriated and I've been like letting news back in, you know, since kind of since right after the inauguration. I like started going, okay, I need to get active. I need to get involved again. I took my break and um, trying to edit my news sources, even in, in, I mean, meaning, you know, there's things like Raw Story or Crooks and Light, there, you know, the liberal, anything that is. Like, I stick with NPR. I try to stick with news sources that existed before the internet and have greater journalistic integrity because I know that 
like, you know, use the Huffington Post as an example, like, internet-only journalism is click-based, and their entire profit motive is based on maximum amount of clicks, because every time you click, you reload ads, every time you reload ads, they make money. Mm -hmm. And, like, just knowing that every art, like, every headline is made to titillate or inflame. It's mm. made to like get some part of your amygdala going so you click on it so you reload the ads. And it's like every single one of those websites, left or right, they are all catering to our worst nature. Yeah. And they are all catering towards feeding us what we want to hear, every single one of them. And it's just like remembering the profit motive and remembering if I'm he if I'm seeing news and it's all making me feel like I'm right, then I'm probably not actually seeing news. Yeah. <laughs> and then you take into account Facebook's algorithms that show you what is right only for you. The yeah. most entertaining thing for you and the thing that's going to increase their profit margin. Mm -hmm. Because Obama having go ball insertion that. is much more entertaining than Obama sign signing a bill that actually helps people. Yeah. It did cure his impotence, though. <laughs> he was the one. He was the one case. Where... He was the one. I mean, you I heard think it here actually... first. <laughs> yeah, are we saying this on the record? <laughs> so how how do you how do you deal with that through through music and through does, does that reflect in your writing and in the songs you're writing now? Um, I haven't written. It's really hard to write well and directly with political stuff, and I can go back and forth on it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think there are people who. Uh, how can I say this? I think having the right message is not always enough in art. It also has to work as art. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be good or else no one cares. For me, it's yeah. good to have both. Mm -hmm. uh, but my my personal standards are also... I, I, I'm curious how it plays out. I mean, and there's songs, you know, on my current album, there's a song called The Easy Ones mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it was written about, you know, Tonglen practice. It's this Buddhist... Um, meditation where you kind of expand your capacity for compassion by you know meditating on love but you start with people who are make you feel comfortable about yourself mm -hmm. and then you try to expand the sphere and yeah. you go into people who drive you crazy and people you don't understand at all and then you try to practice loving them like can you actually concentrate on the you know the people who drive you crazy and, and who you don't understand and yeah. and love them and uh, it, and so there's things, songs like that, that, you know, that song when it was written was very personal at this, at this point feels very political. Um, and I feel there's an art in trying to figure out how to say what I think is true or important in front of an audience. And because people are so polarized, not drive the audience away. And so yeah. to be self-effacing, to kind of own my... You know, I have my own prejudices, I have my own point of view, but I also feel like everybody is ultimately motivated. Not everybody, but most people, left or right, are motivated by love for their family, um, love for their friends, uh, love for the people around them. I think there's um, varying degrees of... Dan, Dan Savage calls it like the, the imagination of your compassion. You know, <clears throat> can you... Imagine your way um, into understanding that people unlike you are also lovable. And how different can you get before you do that? And it's that thing of, you know, when people are like, 
can support a wildly anti-gay you know agenda and somehow think the marriage equality takes something away from them and mm-hmm. think the marriage equality has any effect at all yeah. on their church or their you know which it doesn't right uh, and it's like how does giving other people the same rights you have take anything away from you right is is your privilege in some way harmed by someone else just having basic human rights is that the theme of the current record swallowed by the new uh, the new record is no it's mostly about loss and transition it's about grief and praise uh, grief and praise is kind of the central song on it it was written um, you know I'd been married well married 23 years with my ex for 25 you know since I was 18 mm-hmm. and uh, we split and um, and I was finding my way through that and um, there's not a lot of great tools in our culture for kind of uh, meeting transition well Mm -hmm. um, in every sense of the word (laughs) yeah and and to and and I found myself you know there there's a, a whole community of men who would like to get together when you're in that situation and um get really bitter with you right. <laughs> and I found myself working very hard to avoid that and uh you know to I don't know try to do a lot of self-examination and get a restart I mean at some point if you lose um everything you thought you were sure of you get a chance to you know reassess and start again and um it, it's it's an interesting process to, to I mean to be at this point in life and you know kind of you know had all these ideas about what the future might bring and I, I have no idea at this point yeah. and uh, you know learning to care for myself learning um, you know spiritual life I actually just had another breakup was uh, with an amazing woman for a year and a half and, and needing to be back closer to my daughter mm. I've been seeing her every month but not seeing enough of her and um well I, I think that's the amazing thing about being a musician and a songwriter too is like you there you really go through a lot of self-reflection thinking on things like that whereas most people might just you know go through the breakup and then do that's it, it. yeah do anything to avoid yeah. it yeah and and the doing anything to avoid it like once again we're very isolated and the tools we have you know these days our generations like um we don't have intact social structures trying to find my toolbox has been really interesting and realizing that we're kind of a lot of us making it up as we go well we're pretty much out of time here so um just real quick before we go you mentioned your your daughters and your family a lot i just want to know if if there's one thing that you want your daughters to take away from your music, what what would that be? <laughs> I'm cynical about that. Back to ASCAP and BMI. I wish, I wish, uh, I wish, uh, I just wish it earned a little more so I could leave it to them as their inheritance and it would be worth something. There you <laughs> Isn't go. Isn't that a terrible there you go. thing? <laughs> no, that's a totally noble thing, man. It's a totally noble thing.
<laughs> died. Imagine your way um, into understanding that people unlike you are also lovable.